Well, yesterday, uh, this church campus, I know many of you were up here and part of this, this church campus was buzzing with activity uh, as, as our facility was being transformed into a winter wonderland. Uh, this is Operation Arctic is the theme for Vacation Bible School. So if you walk around the halls, you'll see yards and yards of white paper that's been crumpled up to make it look like snow. And there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of little coffee filter snowflakes that have been cut out and icicles with beads and been strung and all over the hallway. So it's very, a lot of work has gone on into just decorating for Vacation Bible School, let alone all the other preparation for teachers and and craft workers and snacks and games and everybody that's been getting ready for this week and it's not finished yet there will be a lot of a lot of folks up here this afternoon putting the final touches on and working throughout the day to make sure that everything's ready in the morning for our big vacation bible school kickoff so if you are interested in volunteering your services to cut paper snowflakes or whatever is that needs to be done uh, i'm sure they would love for your help hint hint um, but uh, at some point this evening, though, I imagine that David and Nancy Barber will will look on all that's been done and say something like, "You know, okay, we're we're finished. We're we're ready. Everything's everything's done, and we're we're ready for tomorrow morning." Um, but here's the question: Is it really finished? Is it, is it ever really finished? Is there really nothing more that could be done to prepare for vacation Bible school? I know my little part that I'm playing, and I could say, oh, there's more to be done um, that I could do. Is there, is there not room for one more little snowflake <laughs> or icicle? Is it ever, ever really finished? Well, this morning we come to the climax in all of redemptive history, when, when from the cross, Jesus says these words, it is finished. And brothers and sisters, it was finished. When Jesus said it was finished, it really was done. There was nothing, nothing left to be done. Nothing more that could be done to atone for sin, to open the way for eternal life. Nothing. There was not one single drop, one single ounce of wrath that was left to be absorbed for our sin. That you and I might have to take that on. Jesus did most, but we're going to take the last little bit of wrath from the Father. There was was not one tiniest little act of merit left to accomplish. That you and I must somehow muster up the strength and stamina to accomplish and to do nothing. It is finished. It's done. And so those words, paired with words that we're going to hear in a a few months because of uh, the upcoming sabbatical, paired with those words, He is risen, that come three days later in the Gospel account here, those are the very foundation of our eternal hope as believers. Without those words, it is finished and He is risen. We are without any hope. We are without life. And so today we come to this moment that, that as I said, we've been anticipating as a church for many months through our, and really years now through our study of John's Gospel account. This is what Jesus kept pointing to throughout His life. And this is what He was directing His disciples to. I'm gonna, I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be crucified and and I'm going to rise again. And so this is why he came. This was the Father's will for Christ. He was born and he lived to offer up his life as a sacrifice for sin, to die. And so everything's been pointing to this. And so there's this, there's, there's this build up that we're, we're, we're going to see begin to release now in this passage and throughout the remaining weeks of our study through John's Gospel. Let's, so, so let's really see our Lord as He walks these final steps on, on the road to Calvary to what everything has been pointing towards. So verse 16, we're going to walk through this passage now together. So He, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So when you read that Jesus was bearing his own cross, you, you may have in picture, 
uh, in the picture of your mind, Jesus dragging this complete whole cross, you know, both beams uh, through the city streets up to Golgotha. I know that's that's how it's often represented in artistic uh, depictions of this scene, and 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 you've seen this recreated. I know I've seen this on highways across this country. Some guy dragging a cross down the street and. Uh, for for some reason, but it's always that you know both beams of the cross. But the the process was was different. The the vertical post of the cross was prepared uh, before the crucifixion, and it was prepared in advance. And either either it was already set in place, or at least it was it was on site, and the hole was dug. And it was probably more likely. So the prisoner to be executed, though they would they would hoist this horizontal beam on their shoulders and and carry that up to the place of their execution. And so you can imagine, even with that, the the weight of this beam. I've been building a little um, structure in our backyard and doing some work at home and using these big six-by-six six posts. And I, I don't know the dimensions of the, the wood that were used on the cross, but I can I, I I know the my weakness my physical weakness and and me who is who is generally healthy I have not been Brooke doesn't beat me and scourge me before I go out and work outside and try to pick up these pieces of wood so you can imagine the condition that Jesus is in and the weight of this wood probably most guess between 100 and 200 pounds this horizontal beam of the cross and so on many occasions the the, the, the person carrying this beam to his death, they would not be physically able to do that. Just, just depending on the severity of the scourging that they received, they might not be able to make it all the way out of the city and up to the hill to where they would die. <clears throat> we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus carried that cross beam uh, to the city gates, but then he collapsed in a state of complete exhaustion. And so we, we, we see, again, in other gospel accounts, there was a passerby, a guy by the name of Simon of Cyrene in northern Africa. He was enlisted by the soldiers to pick up that cross beam and to carry it the rest of the way for Jesus. Now, just a little rabbit trail, and I call it a rabbit trail because John doesn't mention Simon in, in, in this part of the account, but I, I think it's interesting to see, and this is where it fits in here, you think about this guy, Simon. He was a he was a Jew from modern day Libya. This is where it would be on a map on our map. And so he's traveled a long way to celebrate Passover. He probably saved up for years to make this trip. This is not something he could probably do every year by any means. And it just so happens, all this anticipation of making this trip to to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It just so happens that his path crosses the path of our Lord as he's carrying his cross to Golgotha. And he's the, he just so happens to be the first able-bodied man that the soldier sees and, 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 and then enlists to help Jesus and to take the cross from Jesus and to carry it the rest of the way. And he's drafted um, as he just happens to be walking along at this time. Now, one question, why in the world do we know Simon's name and where he's from? <laughs> if he's just some random guy snatched out of the crowd, why do we, why do we even have his name in, in his place of origin? Well, Mark tells us even more detail that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark chapter 15, verse 21. So apparently, when, when names are given like that, usually what that most likely indicates is that, in this case, Simon's sons were known by the church that, that Mark was writing to. They knew these guys. They were part of the church or had come through and, and had been part of the church, which was probably the church at Rome. If they, if they didn't know their names, why would he bother mentioning them? Uh, if they just kind of faded off into 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 history, they 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 may be the persons mentioned in Acts nineteen thirty three, where an Alexander is is mentioned, and Romans sixteen thirteen, where Rufus and Rufus's mom are mentioned. Was Rufus's mom that Rufus his mom was that Simon's wife? I don't know. Oh, we don't know exactly what happened after this chance encounter. Um, between Simon and being enlisted here, but it's not hard to imagine that his life was changed by this event. I think that's a safe assumption. 
He went from no doubt being agitated and frustrated that he had been enlisted to carry this bloodied man's cross up this hill to probably being struck by the person of Christ. Just seeing him, watching him. Did he stay and watch the crucifixion of Jesus? Did he hear what Jesus said from the cross? Did he connect the dots between the darkness that fell over the land in the middle of the day with Jesus' execution? Did he ask questions of himself or of others? Was he converted soon after? Did he stay around until Pentecost when Peter preached and connected the dots for everybody? Did he go home and tell his family what happened and, and about Jesus? Did, he, did his family become Christians through his testimony? His sons that are mentioned in Mark's gospel account. And in the book of Acts, in Acts eleven twenty, we know that it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who first took the gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch. Was Simon one of those men? Were his two sons in that number? Now, Short answer is, I have no idea. But this is great fodder for the imagination. And uh, William Barclay calls this one of the great hidden romances of the New Testament. Um, But I I don't think it's incidental that names are given in places. I think clearly the church probably knew these people. Well, all right, back to the main trail here. When, When the cross beam is dragged from... Uh, dragged up the hill to Golgotha, the hill outside, this outside of the city, but on this major route in and out of the city. Verse 18, there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now none of the gospel writers, including John, give us any of the horrific details of, of death by crucifixion. I think a couple of reasons. One, in, in part because nobody needed those details. None, none, of, none of John's readers or any of the gospel account, none of their readers needed that because they saw this. This was part of life. They, they had witnessed hundreds, thousands of crucifixions before, so they didn't need to be explained what this involved. And the other part, maybe more significantly, is, is that it's this, is that the physical agony of the cross wasn't, wasn't the main point of the cross. That's not the focus. If you blink, as you read through John, you almost miss the actual moment of crucifixion. And they crucified him. That's about it. But, but since we're so far removed from, from one of the most tortuous forms of ex- execution ever devised, I want to just quickly describe the process for you so you have in mind what's taking place here. What's, what's meant when it says they crucified him. The physical agony, while not the focus of the cross, was unbelievably intense. When they made it up the hill, that horizontal beam would have been laid out on the ground and Jesus' arms stretched out on that timber. And with arms extended, spikes were driven through Jesus' wrists, most likely, possibly his hands, but be more likely his wrists that could bear the weight of his body. Then, probably the the horizontal beam was attached to the vertical beam on the ground. And a single spike driven through both of Jesus' feet. These wouldn't be at all fatal wounds, but you can't even begin to imagine the pain that this would have, uh, just the waves of pain this would have sent through our Lord's body. After he's nailed in place, the soldiers would raise the cross and slide slide that post into a deep hole, and it would have landed with a jarring thud. And immediately, it, the, our Lord's full weight, the full weight of his body would be borne on those nails in his hands and in his feet. And his joints, it would be would be immediately thrust out of their natural position, even major joints. And so the pain, just unbelievable. The Romans were ex- experts at maximizing the pain of execution, of crucifixion. This wasn't just death, this was torture. 
They wanted to prolong the horror of it. So they worked to keep the bodies of the victims of crucifixion from dying too quickly. They wanted them to suffer for two to three days, hanging there for everybody to see until they died. And so over that period, you would have nausea and fever and intense, (coughs) intense thirst, constant cramps, throbbing pain, sleeplessness, hunger, infection, dehydration for hours on end. Victims of crucifixion would eventually die not from (coughs) the wounds and from bleeding, but usually from suffocation. As they were unable to to physically push up anymore with their feet to open up the diaphragm so that they could take the next breath and they would just die of asphyxiation. Now, you add to all of that the horrific physicality of crucifixion and what it is, this, that Jesus is hanging up there completely naked. There's no carefully placed loincloth to make him decent. This was by design. The Romans, this was part of their, this happened in other ways. When they, if they conquered an enemy, they would parade the officers of that conquered army through the streets completely naked to, to just show the utter shame and, and to bring utter humiliation to those. And this is the, this is what's behind this crucifixion. They want to maximize the humiliation and the shame of the victim. So verse 19, we continue. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Now there's nothing unusual about a placard with an inscription on it being placed on the cross. All of the, everybody who was crucified would have, would generally have something placed above the cross saying what their crimes were. And so it was done, again, to show everybody who walked by what the criminal had done. It was, it was a, a way of warning the people, see what happens if you break our laws. So it was, it was designed to be a, a deterrent, particularly with those who were guilty of charged with insurrection. It was, it was saying, you mess with Rome and this is what's going to happen to you. And so this is the case here. In Jesus' case, Pilate has the charge written in three different languages, Aramaic, Aramaic uh, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the everyday language spoken by the Jews. So you have all these <clears throat> Passover pilgrims who are there. And so he wants to make sure that they can read what Jesus' charge is. And Latin was the official language of the Romans. This is the language that the soldiers would be speaking, the offic- that official language. And Greek was the common market language uh, that they, thanks to Alexander the Great and his process of Hellenization that was just throughout the land. And so they, so he writes this inscription, three languages. What does the inscription say? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now in part, I think Pilate's justifying why Jesus is being crucified, why he's hanging there, and he's justifying his death by saying he's a rival king to Caesar, <coughs> and he's being killed for it. Now Pilate doesn't believe that for a second. He's already said many times he believes Jesus was innocent. He was not guilty of any wrongdoing. But this is the, he's got to justify crucifying a man. So so that's part of it. But I think probably his main goal here is to really insult and to embarrass the Jews. Particularly those Jewish leaders. He really wants to poke them. And I think that's the, the main goal. And if his goal is to get a rise out of the chief priests and the scribes, it works. They're furious. And so they, they, they went out to Pilate in a huff. You see, and they say, you've got to change the sign. You can't say that. Verse 21, so the chief priests and the Jew, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am a king of the Jews. Now, by this time, Pilate has had it with them. He is tired of being pushed around and played by them. We've seen this over the last few weeks. And so verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
If you want a more literal translation of the Greek there, it might say something like, buzz off. Shut your mouths. No, I'm done. I'm done with you. You miserable Jews, I've had it up to here. I am done. What I have written, I have written. It stays. Get over it. That's what he's, that's what he's getting. I think of the, was it the king and I? Um, uh, so let it be written, so let it be done. I mean, that's kind of the picture here. So now what? But here's the thing. What, what Pilate meant to be this stinging sarcasm at the Jew, directed at the Jews, God meant for truth. What Pilate meant for evil, God meant for good. And so for, cause Jesus really was the promised king of the Jews. And when, when you remember back at the beginning, when, when, when the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would be with child by the Holy Spirit, what did, what did he say about Jesus? He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And when the Magi traveled to see this infant Jesus they, and, and, and to, to witness this, they asked the question, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And here Pilate unknowingly proclaims the truth. Here's Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yes, in his first coming, he dies as a sacrifice for our sins But in his second coming, he will rule and reign with a rod of iron as king of kings and lord of lords. We know that day is coming. But again, Pilate unknowingly proclaiming God's truth about Jesus, even though his intention is nothing but hate-filled mockery, which shows us something we've seen and have drawn attention to over the last several weeks is, is who is orchestrating all of this all of these events, God is. He's behind this. He's, he's working out His will for a son. And if, if it's not clear yet, we see it even more clearly in the verses that follow. Verse 23, And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. So that since the, since the criminals the, that were, were crucified naked, one of the, quote, perks of being a soldier overseeing in, in this process was to, to keep whatever clothes the victim had and was stripped of. There would be the inner outer garments, a belt, and sandals, that kind of thing. So each of the soldiers picks one article of clothing to take, one of four articles. And yet the undergarment, the tunic, is is complete and it has more value in it. And so they're rather than cutting it up into four pieces and dividing the fabric, they that would really diminish the value of this this tunic. And so they decide to gamble for it by casting lots. Winner takes all, all of the tunic. Now, why is that recorded? And what's the big deal with that? Well, because God, through David, some 1,000 years earlier, said this very thing would happen. Psalm 22. You know Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But Psalm 22 is this great messianic psalm that, that begins and, and is really focused on and is pointing towards the cross. It begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is one of the Words Jesus spoke from the cross. But, the, but this psalm was written by David a millennium before the cross, before this scene, the crucifixion of Jesus. And David, David, the, the, David says words in Psalm 22 that were true of him, but words that were way bigger than him and his circumstances. And, and words that pointed forward to fulfillment in the Messiah that would come, the promised one. And so at the end of verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now listen, just think of Jesus hanging on this cross, fully conscious, because he says some words, he's struggling for every breath, but every once in a while he'll gather himself, catch a breath, say something, seven words, famous words from the cross, but he's... He's conscious of what's going on. He's watching everything transpire. 
in front of him. And he is the second person of the triune God. So this was, this was everything that God has intended to happen is happening right in front of him. The plan is, is being accomplished. Psalm twenty two eighteen is being fulfilled right in front of him. So all, all this, all this happening according to plan, was there the slightest tinge of satisfaction in the midst of the unbelievable pain that he's going through here? I don't mean that in a trite way, but as he, as our Lord is watching this, it's happening. Everything's happening according to plan. God is, is leaving his fingerprints all over these events and all over because of these little details. That, that John is, is pointing to. It, it looks like he's absent. From a human perspective, it looks like he's lost control and, and everything's chaos. But all of this is, is God's plan and he's executing it perfectly. It's all, all happening. Everything's being commanded down to the smallest details. And don't think for a second that the, these Roman soldiers got together and said, you know, I think their scriptures say something about in the Old Testament, it says something about casting lots for the garments of the one that was promised to come. And so we should probably make sure we do that and so that everything's fulfilled with precision. They don't have a clue about Psalm 22. They don't know it exists. So this is not, the, not even on their mind at all. They're oblivious to the fact that they are actively fulfilling a thousand-year-old prophecy right there. But John is jealous to make sure that we understand this. What's really going on here? That the cross is not some accident of history. This is not a series of unfortunate events that our Lord is walking through. This is all according to plan. This is all coming about by the invisible hand of sovereign providence. And then John changes perspective for a moment. and We can take a breath for just a second. And our attention is drawn away from Jesus in sense and drawn away from the Roman soldiers, and we see a group of grieving women. Verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now it's not exactly clear whether we have three or four women here. It doesn't really matter. But certainly you have Mary, Jesus' mother. You have another Mary, Jesus' aunt. You have Mary Magdalene. And then maybe you have another woman who is the wife of Clopas, or maybe that's Jesus' aunt, a further description of, of her. The grammar is ambiguous in, in, in the Greek here. but it, you know, So we have three or four women. It doesn't really matter. But either way, these women are at the cross watching Jesus' execution, which took some courage to stand there. We know John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is there also. And when Jesus looks down from the cross, he sees his mom in this crowd, in this cluster of women. Now again, just fully man. Here's Jesus seeing his mom, weeping, grieving. Her heart is just torn to pieces. Remember when the infant Jesus was presented in the temple and you had Simeon and the prophetess Anna who are there and there's this prophetic word that's spoken on that day of presentation to Mary and Mary is told that a sword will pierce your soul. And that word is being fulfilled right here. Her soul is in anguish as she... As she endures watching the horrendous execution of her son. And, and, and yet it's not, it's not just her boy. And that's not just what makes it so grievous. This is the death of the one who was promised to be her Messiah. The very son of God. And Mary is a, is a bright woman. A theologically astute woman. And so she knows that God's God's redemptive plan, everything's been prophesied and it's pointing to him. And here he is hanging on this cross, utter shame, utter humiliation, agony, intense pain, bloodied and, and, and it looks like all hope is lost. So, so there's this enormous grief. It's not just natural grief, it is that, but it's more than that. So her soul is being pierced as she beholds Jesus on the cross. And in that moment, Jesus looks at her. And he speaks to her. When Jesus saw his mother, verse 26, and the disciple whom he loved, 
which most likely John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, see your mother. He isn't saying to Mary, Woman, look at me. He's saying, Woman, look at, look at John. Behold your son. John, behold your mother. One of the last things Jesus does before he dies is he looks after at the care of his widowed mother. Jesus, Joseph has died many years before probably at this point. Now, were Jesus' half-brothers out of the picture? Were they not in Jerusalem at this time? Maybe or maybe Jesus is showing and the, the value of spiritual relationships over physical ones. Jesus' brothers are not brothers in, in, in that spiritual sense yet. And so maybe, he, maybe they had the financial wherewithal to care for Mary. But Jesus, her soul, he's caring for her soul. And he's saying, John, take care of my mom. And either way, Mary went and lived in John's house. From that day on, verse 27 tells us. Now, one other thing real quick. When Jesus says woman, it doesn't have the connotation that we think of in English. Woman, bring me my dinner. You know, we, we hear woman and we think adversarial, confrontational, and that's, that's, not, a, that's not a polite way to speak. Um, this, is a, this is a word of honor, of dignity. This would be like our ma'am. This is a term of tenderness. He's used the same word for his mother, at the wedding at Cana, he uses the same word, interestingly, for the woman um, caught in adultery. He speaks to her woman. There's tenderness, there's care, there's dignity in this word. So in a loving way, Jesus says to Mary, Woman, behold, your son. And he commits her to John's care. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that All was now finished. There's our word. He said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Yes, he did. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. They're raising this up so he can get a drink. Now, you can only imagine the kind of extreme thirst associated with with crucifixion, that hot Palestinian uh, sunny day and just beating down on him. Jesus cries out because of his thirstiness. And we're told here again that this is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy of the suffering servant whose tongue would cling to the roof of his mouth because of his thirstiness. And Jesus cries out, I thirst. And so they lift up this sponge soaked with sour wine of some kind. I think of that weird stuff that some of y'all make at home and drink and Vinegar stuff. I don't remember what. I can never remember what it's called. Some kind of sour fermented drink. And they lift that up to him. Some debate whether this is this is just to add to his agony. Or whether it's actually something to quench thirst. I tend to think that this is actually somewhat of a mercy. To, to keep them. A part of keeping them alive again. Not necessarily a mercy that they're caring for them. But they're keeping them alive. Uh, it may be just to aggravate him even more and make him more thirsty. I, but it, it, regardless, now what's most significant about this is what happens right after this. And John is very explicit. After this, after this, after this. It, it, just before Jesus, is, uh, Jesus utters his very final words, which we have to go to the parallels to see, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just before he says those final words, Jesus says this, verse 30, it is finished. It's finished. In Greek, tetelestai. It takes three English words to translate that one Greek word, tetelestai. It's finished. What's finished? What's, what's accomplished? What's completed? Is this a cry of despair? Oh, my life is over. I'm finished. My, my mission, my ministry is coming to a disastrous end. Not at all. Is this a cry of relief? Oh, the worst is finally over. I mean, I think there is relief that the agony of the cross is, is coming to an end. But I don't think that's really it. 
This is a cry of satisfaction. That his mission has been accomplished. It's done. He can, he, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And it's done. It is finished. Atonement for sin has been made. The way to eternal life has been thrown open. It's done. The whole reason for his coming into the world is now fulfilled. To tell us die. It is finished. Now that's a, that's a very common word in the Greek language and it was used in, in many different areas. I mean, just for example, if slaves would have used this after coming in from a day's work to say, to report that their work was done for the day. Uh, they would say to the master, telestai, it is finished. Or, or an artist who's sculpting something could, would say when his, his masterpiece was done, it, it is finished, telestai. Uh, it was also used though in, in commerce. And so if, if, you, if you were buying something on an installment plan or if you had a, a debt that needed to be settled, the, when you came in and you made that final payment, there would be stamped on that bill, tatelestai, paid in full. It's finished. Nothing left to be owed. And so Jesus says this word. It is finished. I have paid it all. The Father, the, the, the cup that the Father gave me to drink and set before me, I have drank every bit of it all the way to the dregs. It's all done. Nothing left to do. And we know there was nothing left to do or that needed to be done for what we read at the end of verse 30. And he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He had said before, nobody can take my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And he, when his mission is accomplished, when atonement is made, he decides when he's going to die. And he gives up his ghost, his spirit. And he dies much sooner than it normally took in crucifixions. Now very quickly, the last few verses, and then I'm going to draw it all together. Verse 31, Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day in Passover, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now the reason is that if they break the legs of the victim, obviously the the broken legs can't be straightened enough so that they can get a breath and breathe and they'll die quickly of suffocation. So they're not at all concerned about Jesus, putting Jesus out of his misery. This is not an act of mercy or compassion. All they're concerned about is the so-called purity of their feasts. So they've, they've, they've just murdered the one whom all of the feasts were established for, who all the feasts point to. And here, though, they want to make sure they don't, they don't disobey some little religious regulation in the process of crucifying him so that they can go back and eat their Passover meal and not worry about any little detail that was overlooked. So they asked Pilate to kill these people quickly. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Now, I just, you just, again, you just think of the physicality of this. You know, legs broken while you're hanging on the cross, suspending nails in your arms and hands and feet. This is brutal. I don't know if you've ever heard of like a bone, like a leg bone snap before. It's an awful sound. And so probably with clubs or the dull edge of the sword, they just beat these legs the below the knee till the bones are broken. They can't hold themselves up. But when they come to Jesus, lo and behold, he's already dead. He gave up his spirit. No need to break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. Now there's no symbolism. I don't think any symbolism in that. I know there are, I've read people that have want to make that communion and baptism or something like that. I don't think that's it at all. 
is just a sign that death has taken place. He's not in some semi-comatose state on the cross. He's not in some swooning position. He is dead. He is really, really dead. His body is dead. Now, John's concern, again, is with the fulfillment of Scripture here. So verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him in whom, on him whom they have pierced. So the Old Testament talked about uh, the, the Messiah being pierced. And the Old Testament talked about the Son of God not having any bones broken. That's interestingly in God's providence, Psalm 34, verse 19, the psalm that we're going to be looking at tonight in our gathering. And it was not planned by me, but it just so worked out in God's timing. But both of those prophecies are fulfilled here. This is what John's showing. And in the middle of that description, John gives us this statement. He who saw it is born witness and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now why does he put that in here? This is, this is a form of an oath. It's as if John is taking the stand, putting his hand on the Bible and, and raising his hand and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's, this, is, this is that kind of language. This is oath language. And he's taking the sacred vow before God, swearing to the accuracy and the veracity of everything he's reported about Jesus' death. And I'm telling you this, and it's true. And, and, and the reason I'm telling you this truth is so that you may believe. That's his concern. That's been his driving concern. That's the whole reason we have the Gospel of John. His whole purpose for writing these 21 chapters. He says, everything that I've written, I could have written a thousand more pages uh, if I were to explain everything, the whole world couldn't be filled with all the things that would be to, would be said, could be said about Jesus. But these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you will have life in His name. So John's saying, he's pleading with his readers, I'm telling you the truth. Believe this. And, I, and I'm saying all this so that you believe. You can take it to the bank. You can trust in the sacrifice of this Lamb of God. And so John's making this earnest appeal. This, is, this message is real. This death is real. It's true. Atonement for sin has been made. Believe. Believe. Have you believed? Are you believing today? Are you trusting in Christ? And the atonement that He's made for your sin. We're all sinners. We're all born sinners. We're all... We're all unable to please God our own. We're, we're separated from God because of our sin. Without hope, we will have no chance of ever making it to heaven, ever uh, knowing anything in our future except an eternal punishment in hell on our own because we're sinners. And yet, Christ has come. He's perfectly obeyed God's righteous law. And as the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, he laid down his life, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's what's happening on the cross. That's what he means when he says it's finished. He's making atonement for all of our sin. And, the, and, and, and he holds out to us, because he's died and because he rose again, he holds out to this gift and says, receive it by faith. Believe, put your trust in me. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit trying to... Try to please me in your own strength. Just trust me in what I've done. And I would say to you, have, have you believed, have you put your trust in Christ? You know the eternal life that Jesus offers to all who do believe and call upon his name. You can now, and I urge you not to delay. You can bow your head right now, confess your sin to God, acknowledge that your, your, your only confidence is in Christ alone and what he's done. And you can be born again to a living hope right now. And we would love to talk with you afterwards. So I beg you to do that. But even if you, if you are a believer here today, and I know most, most of you are, and your trust is in Jesus Christ, I, I pray that you and I both will believe more. Not that we'll be more and more Christian, uh, that we're, our, our eternal state is settled the moment you put your trust in Christ, but we need to believe more deeply in, in Christ crucified, that our faith and confidence in Christ crucified and risen will grow. 
That they will cling to this truth like never before. What we just sang earlier, that our, that our name is written in the wounds of Jesus. And that through His suffering, we're free. We don't live like free people because we don't believe this like we should. We, we, that, that, that death has been crushed to death. That we might live this life that's been won through the selfless love of Jesus Christ. We sang those words, but does that really characterize me? Part of the issue is I, I struggle. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I struggle to believe, and even as a believer, and I know you do too, we so easily revert to thinking that what Jesus really must have meant was, it's almost finished. Almost all of the wrath has been satisfied. There's a little bit left. God's holding a little bit, and He's he's holding that over your head for the rest of your lives. So you keep working, you keep striving, you keep trying to earn approval with God. I struggle, bro. Sisters, it's hard to get off of that performance treadmill thing. I just got to do enough, got to do enough, got to do enough, got to do enough, got to clean up my act before I can talk to God because he, he certainly won't hear me in this condition. No, it's finished. Wrath has been satisfied. If I've trusted in Christ, I have his righteousness and I'm clothed in it. And when God sees me, that's all he sees is Jesus' righteousness because all of my sin has been atoned for. We, we need help. We need, to, we need to believe. We need to grow in that faith. We need to conclude, and we're going to sing. I, I, just, I just, as we've seen in the last several weeks, <laughs> and certainly today, the whole scene here is so thick with bitter irony. That you think about all of these Jewish pilgrims that are streaming into the city, this hubbub of activity of, around this celebration of the Passover and festival time and a very happy time and a cheerful time and families reconnecting and coming in and eating and feasting and celebrating and offering sacrifices and singing and all this activity that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. And, and so these pilgrims are going to go home with their children and they're going to sit around a table and they're going to praise God that their sin has been covered maybe for another year. And then they're going to, they're going to pass Golgotha because most people would pass right by the cross and with the same children in tow, they're going to, they're going to no doubt do what any self-respecting, moral, religious person would do. What you and I would do if we were walking by that cross is we'll mock the one who's hanging there from the cross because he's, he's clearly been cursed by God and, and he, and he, he's, he's there because he deserves it, suffering outside of the city gates. When all the while, This man is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very one that that meal, that lamb that we're going to eat for dinner, that Passover lamb, that Passover meal, the very one that that's pointing to is dying right out there. Taking all the sin of the world and suffering alone. I want to conclude just focusing some application and implications for us in three directions and one we've dealt with quite a bit already and we'll be very brief here I think there's inward application for us and we've just talked about this if you are in Christ if you've put your trust in Jesus you can be assured in Christ that's the first thing be assured in Christ inwardly as we really see Christ crucified if we really get this scene We really believe what Paul says in Romans, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's finished. Because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing lacking in Christ's sacrifice that we have to make up for. What what security, what assurance, what confidence, what hope that gives to us. That's something we struggle to come by, isn't it? We're full of guilt and shame and regret. And, and I just I want the, this truth of it is finished to wash over you today. It humbles our pride and it gives comfort to the, and help to those who struggle with that guilt. 
the cross, as the writer of Hebrews said, the blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's not a word of vengeance or or wrath or guilt. Christ's blood proclaims grace and mercy and full forgiveness. And that's the word we need. There's also an outward application. It's to be a herald for, for Christ. It's to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. The, the love of Christ for the world, for us, is displayed on the cross in this moment. That should tenderize our hearts as we think about the lost all around us and the lost around the world. Here we have these kids coming on campus for vacation Bible school praying that there will be many from our neighborhood and from this community coming on here and, and some who don't know Christ. And we have an opportunity to show the love of Christ, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to herald this message. Jesus loves us. He died for us. He rose again. And he offers to us eternal life. And so, so again, rightly understanding, rightly seeing the cross, it obliterates any, any holdout of pride in our lives that... that, that, that moves us to try to keep a comfortable distance from those people. No, when we, when we see the cross right, we're not, we're not afraid of the contamination of those bad people and we'll just kind of stay holed up in here and build our little Christian compound life. No! We move out, we take risks, we're bold, we, we go and we proclaim Jesus Christ to those who need Him most. Because we didn't believe because we were smarter or better or more inclined than any of those people were. No, it was only the grace of God. So this, if we really get it, we're going to go out. We're going to be fools for Christ. And then finally, there is clearly an upward application, and we've been doing this already this morning, and we're going to do it now, song anyway, and it's, it's, it's the upward application, it's the glory and the cross of Christ. What was meant to be shame, curse, is now our glory. It's transformed because of what Jesus has done there. So we're going to sing in just a moment and I want this together. That's not the only way to glory in the cross by any means. But that's one way that the Lord has called us as a church is to sing. And we're, I want us to belt those praises out as we sing together. Let me pray. Lord, may we as we're about to sing behold the man upon the cross our sin upon his shoulders. God, ashamed, may we hear our mocking voices in that crowd of scoffers crying out. It was our sin that nailed you there, Jesus. Until all was accomplished, until it was paid in full, finished. Your dying breath has brought us life. We know, we know it is finished. Lord, may we revel in this truth now and may we glory in you Jesus Christ together we pray in Jesus name amen